0: Well, it's good to see everybody and it's good to be back from a way too short vacation, but it was nice to get away and Uh, I wasn't quarantined. I got several emails from people who wanted to know because I had been exposed to uh, the COVID virus two weeks ago that uh, after we uh, sent that email out and then I wasn't here all of last week, people thought that I was quarantined. I was not quarantined. I was on vacation. I was pretty much quarantined on vacation. I wasn't around too many people. I was relaxing and reading and doing a lot of walking and uh, just uh, getting, getting refreshed and unplugged and not doing anything of much substance other than relaxing. So I uh, appreciate prayers, and um, I never did have any symptoms. And in fact, nobody at that gym where I go uh, had any symptoms. Because they follow great protocols, it was just a little glitch that morning that put me next to a uh, a lady who ended up getting tested positively the next day for 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 the virus. And I didn't think I I never eat, I never was face to face with her. I was she was here and I was here, but that was close enough. Anyhow, uh, everything's going great. I'm healthy and refreshed, ready to go. Two announcements. First of all, there will not be a men's prayer breakfast this Saturday morning. So we're not going to start that up again until maybe next month. But this month there was a schedule uh, glitch, and so we will not have men's prayer breakfast. However, there will be a deacon's meeting. What time, Greg? 8.30. 830. Okay. Uh, Deacon's meeting, 8.30, and then... Uh, just a reminder that the Pre-Trib Rapture Study Group is coming up, and that takes place on December 7th through the 9th in Dallas. You can go to the pre-trib.org uh, website and get information, look at the brochure, and this is going to be, as they all are, Dr. Tommy does an excellent job putting these conferences together and getting good speakers and even if you may not have heard of any of these names, some of them you will have heard heard of, but if you haven't, that doesn't mean they're not good. He, he picks people who have been writing and researching in specific areas usually related to their topic so that they can do a, an outstanding job of teaching and informing uh, the rest of us. As you know, it's time to vote. And I hope and pray that all of you are going to vote. They always say every year that there's about 30 or 40 percent of evangelical Christians don't vote. I don't understand that. Voting is part of our responsibility as citizens. And as believers, we're to do all things to the glory of God. That includes our responsibilities as citizens of, of a nation. So I hope and pray that you are going to uh, Going to vote as they're having having early voting at this particular new stage, and we need to continue to pray for our president, pray for this election, pray for our nation. There needs to be a tremendous change. I am becoming you know, i don 't get out much as you can imagine that 's not my job, my job is to study and teach, and for that i 'm somewhat grateful that i don 't get out much, but I do talk to a lot of people who do interact with With folks, and I interact with some longtime friends of mine who are not uh, of uh, our biblical persuasion, shall I say. And it's getting to the point where it's almost impossible to talk to people because they have such murky minds due to the carnality, the rejection of God, the suppression of truth that that you, their their presuppositional foundation is so chaotic that simple statements have to be worked through in detail before you can even you know as it were if you use a baseball analogy you have to go through 10 steps just to teach somebody how to hold a bat and walk out to the plate and where to stand you you just can't assume that they know anything, and they reject everything because of their uh, relativistic presuppositions. And every day on the news, we just see more and more examples of the, the impact of the relativism on our culture, on our leaders. That's why I'm going to start a study of the book of Judges after the first of the year, because we live in a time that is so much like the time of the judges, dominated by moral relativism, which affects everybody. It affects, In Israel, it affected the people, it affected their leaders, it affected the priesthood. Same thing is true today. We see apostasy in the pulpit. We see uh, the people who, who, even those who hope and pray that they are faithful to the word, we're still infected by this miasma of relativism that surrounds us and, uh, and so we need to be more aware of how the world influences us. We're not to be conformed to the world so we have to understand what the world is like and that same kind of thing was happening in the ancient world in Israel. They were surrounded by this Canaanite culture and instead of doing what God said to do which was to completely remove it through annihilation and to get rid of it, they compromise with it. And once you have to settle down and live with a pagan culture, it very easily influences you. And that's what's happened in our country. And it's just tragic. It's horrible. And so we need to be in, in prayer for our nation. We are in the midst of a tremendous spiritual battle worldwide. And we need to pray for for our leaders and especially those in in, in leadership, whether it's from city government all the way up to national government, who are believers and who are struggling to have an impact from a Judeo-Christian worldview and a biblical framework. And so we need to pray for them because it is it is a terrible battle for them. And Satan truly does target them just as he does uh, pastors, just as he does uh, seminaries in order to dilute and destroy the truth. So before we get started, we're going to need to pray and we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. So if necessary, you can confess sin in silent prayer to the Lord and look to him and be prepared spiritually for our time of study this evening. Let's pray. Our Father, you are a great and glorious God. You have a plan that has encompassed all of human history. You have a plan that is being worked out, though we do not know how. We we see things happen, such as this COVID pandemic this year, that are of such worldwide impact that we know that you must be moving the pieces on the chessboard arranging things eventually for the return of our Lord at the rapture and then the events that are described in Revelation. But even though things look very chaotic now, we don't know whether the Lord will return for us, the church, uh, soon or a decade or two or three. Maybe we will not live to see it, even though many of us have thought that we would see the rapture in our lifetime. We can think of many great Bible teachers who have gone to be with you in the last decade or two and they all thought that the rapture would occur during their lifetimes. But father, we trust in you and we're reminded of where we ended our study last time in in 2nd uh, Corinthians chapter I mean 2nd Chronicles uh, chapter 20 as Jehoshaphat was leading the people of Judah against their enemies of the Moabites and Ammonites Edomites and how they had no skill, they had no training, they had no capabilities. There was nothing they could rely on on themselves. And as they gathered for battle, Jehoshaphat prayed, "O oh our God, will you not judge them?" And Father, we pray this same prayer tonight. Will you not judge those who are against, who are arrayed against you, and against your word, and against the body of Christ in this nation? Would you not bring them to a destruction of their ways because they have uh, committed such evil? Would you expose that evil and uh, defeat their plans and their purposes? Because, Father, we can only rely on you. As Jehoshaphat prayed, for we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. For as the prophet told him a few verses later, the battle is the Lord's. The battle is yours. And so, Father, we trust in you. We pray for our president, that you would keep him safe, that you would keep those around him, the vice president, who we know is a solid believer and understands the truth in many, many ways. And he is a great source of advice to the president. We pray that you would keep him healthy, that the president would listen to him, and that you would put... Uh, wisdom on his tongue as he talks to the president. Father, we pray for others in the national administration as well as in states and cities that you would uh, cause the evil to be exposed and to defeat itself. Now, Father, as we study today, may we be just refreshed and encouraged and strengthened as we study your word, focusing on that which never changes and that which uh, helps us to understand how great and glorious and awesome and powerful and beautiful you are. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are studying in Psalm 30. We've been studying Psalm 30 for two or three lessons, and we came to verse 4. And in verse 4, there is the command to the people of Israel to sing praise to the Lord. As we see in verse 4, the command, Sing, praise to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. What we see here is an important command. Since it's been a couple of weeks, and since we've studied this, I'm going to do a little more review. I need to do the review more for me than probably for you. Go away on vacation where you don't think about anything significant. Uh, except uh, relaxing and resting. It's taken me most of the day to get my mind back where it was uh, two weeks ago. So one of the things that we talked about was if you're going to fulfill a command like singing praise to the Lord, you have to have certain things in place. The first thing you have to have is the content. What are you going to sing? Are you just going to blather with whatever comes out of your mouth and just in discord just make something up as you go along like some five-year-old kid walking up to a keyboard and just banging out notes on the piano or is it going to have order is it going to have symmetry is it going to have significant meaning and we're just talking about the words how are the words to be structured And we'll come back to this talk as we go through the passages that we deal with. But what's remarkable is the beauty of the literature and the way in which the Bible is written. And it is sad today because so few people have an education that gives them the capacity to appreciate the Bible as good literature. It's written well. They didn't have, as I've taught you many times in the past, they didn't have things like bold-faced type or italics or underlining or different things that we put in as punctuation in order to communicate and convey uh, certain things in, in a writing. They just had the language and the grammar. And so they did so much with the word plays, especially in the Psalms, with the Figures of speech. And I've told you before that when I was in seminary, standard course in second year Hebrew is usually a course in the Psalms. Because to learn to exegete the Psalms is, is hard. It's difficult. It's poetry. But much of the Old Testament is actually written in poetry. A lot of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel is poetry. If you can exegete poetry, then you can exegete narrative literature. And poetry, though, uses a lot of figures of speech. It uses metaphors and similes. It uses hypocatastasis. It uses ascendant and synecdoche and uh, metonymy. And see, you were never taught any of those things. Neither was I when I, and I was an English major uh, in college. These are all figures of speech. And when I took Psalms, we had a required text. was a book about uh, two and a half, three inches thick called Figures of Speech by E.W. Bullinger. And he lists all the figures of speech as written around the turn of the last century. And all the figures of speech are given their Latin names. And then the English name. And then he goes back to the Greek name because the Greeks developed out uh, and organized and categorized a lot of these figures of speech. But these figures of speech are so important because they elevate the language and they elevate the literature. And it shows the complexity Of the literature, and yet we can read in our English translation and get so much out of it because, in God's wisdom and skill, He communicates in a way that is both simple and complex. And that relates to who He is in His essence. That's part of His glory, and as we'll see in our study, it's part of His beauty. And as we're studying about what it means to sing, you have two elements you have the words and you have the music. And both of them uh, work together in harmony with each other, just as within the Trinity, you have this harmonious relationship th- between three persons that are distinct, and yet, in essence, they are one. So you have diversity or differences, in differences between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in terms of their functions, but in terms of their essence, they are one. So you have diversity, which comes across in God's creation as complexity, but you also have simplicity. And one of the things that uh, I've heard back from, from people when I talk about the quality of the hymns that we sing or quality of the music, is some people get the idea that that means something along the order of classical-type music, something that is uh, elevated. what's interesting is if you study the history of music in uh, western civilization is that up until the middle to late part of the uh, 19th century the music all of the music that we think of as the classical music Brahms, Beethoven, Bach, Mozart was written for the masses there wasn't a division between classical and popular. The opera, we think of opera well, you have to be educated and this is for the elite and it's not for everybody. The operas were written as entertainment for the masses. What happens when you get into the late 19th century due to the influence of Kantian um, dial, Kantian philosophy, Hegelian dialectic, is you start to see a split. You have uh, and it happens in a number of other areas where music is, there's, there's, this becomes highbrow music and this is popular music. But you didn't have that before the end of the 19th century. Even that breakdown of music, looking at it that way, is a result of of the shift in thinking that occurred under as a result of Kant's philosophy as it began to take over. And that's really the root of what becomes modernism, in the 19th century, and then deteriorates even more into postmodernism in the in the 20th century, in the 21st century. And I've read three or four articles while I was gone. Nobody knows what to call this. It is the next evolution from postmodernism, critical race theory, uh, social justice, cultural Marxism, all of these different things that we hear talked about today. Those are really—that's the next level of a world view that has gone beyond postmodernism. But nobody knows just exactly what how it's going to be termed. But all of this has destroyed our appreciation for music, our appreciation for literature. I was kind of laughing about this this earlier, but I read uh, one writing this week that was uh, humorous. It was a work in humor that. One day you're going to be talking to your grandchildren, you're going to say, well, we used to have a thing called words. Words were made up of letters. We had an alphabet. Now all we have are emojis, and nobody knows what words are anymore. And I thought about that in terms of what we see with music, with the division between, oh, there's classical music and those people who listen to opera and classical music and everything, and then there's everybody else who listens to pop stuff. Well, there may come a time in the not-too-distant future, if the Lord tarries, where we have people who can read with letters and words and can actually understand literature, but that's going to be the elite, the educated. The rest of the people are, are only going to be able to communicate with emojis, and that's it. And uh, and that's really sad. That's the same kind of thing that happened and destroyed uh, music and appreciation of music. So when, when Scripture... T- Talks about this. And there are several places in Scripture that use these commands, like to sing praise. It assumes that they know words, lyrics, and music. And music, as Scott Annual taught in the first conference where he was here, the Chafer Conference back in 2013. I'd encourage you maybe go back and review that, or those who are listening, if you never heard that, that would be a good thing to listen to. He talked about music as language. Music, just music as the music communicates things. You can have music that comes out of a pagan worldview, and it's designed to elevate the emotions and to uh, ramp up the emotions, and you have music that is designed to enhance cerebral activity, thinking, rational thought. And and there's a huge difference between the two. Music is a language. So we have the words and we have the music. And if we're going to worship a God that is glorious, a God that is beyond anything that we can imagine, a God who has as described with so many of these terms throughout Scripture, his majesty, his splendor, he is awesome, his glory, his beauty. Uh, if we have worship such a God, then that which we craft from our artistic ability should imitate and enhance a God who is described by those attributes. And so that drives us to to elevate. Now it ha- hasn't always been that way in Western civilization. You go back and you can find early hymns in we don't have the music, there's some music in a few places, but we have words. And of course those words in the early church were modeled on the language and the style of the psalms. And in fact through much of the church it was the psalms that were sung and put to music but you move through a period from the early Byzantine church and you've heard Byzantine chants I've played examples of that in the past that is very two-dimensional and it is designed to because of the influence of, of, uh, of Neoplatonism designed to elevate to focus on the, that which is beyond that is ethereal rather than that which is concrete and here and now and then, as the civilization matured, as Christianity matured, the music changed, and it and the, the birth of Western music is the result of the influence of biblical Christianity in Western society. Today, it is pro, it is um, uh, today it is um, popular. For people to come along and criticize Western civilization and to tear it down, and remember this, any attacks that you read on Western civilization are really veiled attacks, and in some places they're not veiled. They are attacks on Christianity. Because before Christianity came along, roughly 2,000 years ago, before Christianity came along, what did you have? You had just a host of pagan tribes all throughout Europe that were not any different from the different tribes in Africa or different tribal uh, groups and clans in Arabia or in the, the Far East. But it was when Christianity came in and spread through Western Europe, people responded to the gospel, they responded to the word of God, and they began to build and develop a Christian way of thinking about all of God's creation. And so that led to, uh, it, it led to the enhancement and development of concepts related to the rule of law. In England and in the English speaking countries, they, it reached its high watermark uh, in the period of probably the seven, 16 and 1700s. And the whole development of law and justice and legal theory as objective realities that should be attained, uh, the ideals should be attained, but knowing that because we live in a fallen world, they never would be attained, um, but nevertheless, we pursue justice. it was grounded in an um, in an absolute that was outside of our experience, not based upon um, It wasn't based upon emotion. It wasn't based upon personal experience. It wasn't subjective. It had an objective foundation. And that is what made Western civilization great. And once Western civilization began to turn away from God in the mid-1700s and into the 1800s, then you begin to see all of that collapse. Now, Western civilization was never perfect. No civilization will be. No rule of government will ever be perfect in this life because... Uh, we're all fallen creatures and everything is corrupted by sin but it developed a high water and so there was a value that was placed upon the music that developed and it was from people who conscientiously attempted to apply these principles of of aesthetics of beauty to music and to and to the words so there's this development of of a concept that if we're going to sing praise to the Lord, it needs to be the best that we can offer. And for somebody living in the 3rd century in some small village in Eastern Europe, that's going to be quite different from somebody who's living in uh, 20th century America or 21st century America. Uh, and And over the years, there was a gradual improvement as things went forward. So we seek to do our best. It's never going to be... It's never going to achieve the excellence of maybe some other places. Think about the temple. When you, we're looking at the temple and all of this music and these orchestras that are developed by David and put into the temple to enhance worship and direct people's thinking toward God, that only took place at the temple. It didn't take place in the villages away from uh, away from Jerusalem, and we know that there were places in other areas where altars were set up, so because it was difficult for people to make their journey all the way to Jerusalem, even though there was the law said there was only to be one central sanctuary and, and so what happens is that uh, in the In the course of the Old Testament, you come to the uh, intertestamental period, the development of the synagogues and you had synagogues in places around galilee and in different villages and they could not hope to have a choir or a or an orchestra that was on par with the one that was in Jerusalem, but they were to do the best that they could do. And I think that's an important thing that I may not have emphasized enough in the past, that if you have a small church, you're not going to be able to produce the kind of music that, for example, a large church of 10,000 people is going to be produced because of all of the different talent and the finances and the orchestra and everything else that they can have. But we are to do the best that we can do with what God has given us. So this is the starting point, and... Some people minimize singing, and yet and when we look at Ephesians 5:18 to 20, we see that being uh, filled by means of the Holy Spirit leads first and foremost to uh, singing, to speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. That's the first result. It's the same kind of thing listed in Colossians 3:16, that when we let the word of Christ dwell in us, we're admonishing one another uh, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. So singing is not something that is secondary or optional in the Christian way of life. It is something that is the first and foremost result that is produced in a person's life who is walking by the Spirit. I talked about beauty and uh, just a couple of things to review, that there are different theories about about beauty there's the objective view that that beauty is intrinsic to something and it fits certain patterns and it is uh, inherent in reality. And if you think about it, uh, think of a sunset, a beautiful sunset, and you see it, And whoever you are, whatever culture you're in, you can't escape the fact that this is just something that is beautiful, multicolored, it's glorious. And I saw several when I was away on vacation this last week and just absolutely fabulous uh, colors in the sky. And we look at it and it is beautiful in and of itself, whether there's anybody there to appreciate it or not. It is an objective sense of beauty. Then there's the subjective sense, which has to do with how we feel about something, the idea that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And I said this idea really doesn't gain purchase until after you have the Kantian revolution in philosophy in 1776 and following, coming out of Germany, that everything is subjective. You don't know things as they are. You only know your impressions of it. So now beauty is something that is purely subjective at what happens in you, And then the third is the relational theory that uh, their objective beauty brings forth a subjective response. And I think that's close to what we're talking about here. But there's an objectivity to beauty that when we say music is glorious or beautiful, that that's appealing to a standard. And you or I may not have the capacity yet to appreciate that music. I remember in elementary school we used to have music appreciation once or twice a week music teacher would come in and and play different uh different music cl- usually classical music and we would have to learn it and then we would have a test and they would just play different things and we would have to uh we would have to identify the the work from which it came and so that uh that wasn't something that as a 12 year old I really got excited about, even though at the time I was still taking piano lessons and mostly playing playing different concertos and symphonies and things of that nature, but I just didn't have the capacity yet for it, and it takes time for people to grow and mature and to to understand that that it's better to have a diet that is healthy than one that comes every day, morning, noon, and night from Burger King or McDonald's or some other fast food restaurant, because that's basically what you get on the radio. And and it has no nutrition, and that's pretty much what 99% of anything written for Christians in the last uh, 30 or 40 years is all about. It's just spiritual fast food that's going to make you sick. So we have these standards. Ancient Greek philosophy focused on symmetry, proportion, and harmony. Later you had others that would develop the idea of truth and beauty as well as harmony. Modern refinements of the idea, unity and integrity of the parts to the whole. Second, proportion or harmony. There would be something orderly and harmonious in the, in the relation and arrangement of the parts. And then third, splendor, something glorious, something magnificent, something stunning, something grabs your attention. It doesn't have monotony, and it's not chaos. But what's the opposite of beauty? I talked about this last time. God is beautiful. We're going to look at more scriptures tonight. God is beautiful. What's the opposite of God? Satan, he's ugly, but he can transform himself into an angel of light. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians. So ugly is the opposite of beauty. So we can say that something is ugly, it has a lack of unity, it has a lack of form or order or harmony, and it is chaotic. And usually when we see something that's ugly, it repulses us. And we don't want to have anything to do with it. So we have. I have some visual pictures of ugliness. Now, which of you would like to have a romantic dinner with the person you love at a place like this—a junkyard, just auto parts strewn here and there with absolutely no order, value, or. Let's go to the beach. Here's a nice beach that is strewn with plastic and litter, and just there's nothing beautiful there. But you could see a picture of a beach where there's nothing there, it's just pristine sand and the blue water and the sun reflecting off the water, and you just say, Oh, that's beautiful. But this is ugly. Isn't that attractive? We inherently think that that is ugly, but there are people in that culture who think that is beautiful. Because what happens in a sinful world is that your standards of beauty get corrupted and perverted. And so it's only when we get into God's Word that the Word of God will transform us and change us. And we begin to see things that we once thought perhaps were good or enjoyable, that we took a lot of pleasure in and we realize that that really isn't something that honors honors God. And so we looked at Ecclesi- Ecclesiastes 3.11, which states that God has made everything beautiful in its time. For that to communicate as it's intended to, the concept of beauty has to have an objective reference point. There has to be an external standard of beauty and because god is perfect everything that god made originally was perfect and that would include the idea of attractiveness and beauty it is because of sin the ugliest thing in the world in all of the universe is sin because it is a violation of everything that god stands for all of his essence it is the complete opposite and because of that, there is corruption there's ugliness there is sorrow there's darkness uh, in our in our world now I wanted to establish this biblically we started off last week with just a few things and I wanted to review those that the Bible uses a number of different terms to express the beauty and excellence of God there are numerous words we could probably identify as many as twelve, thirteen, or fourteen I 'm not going to go into all of them it'll cloud, your eyes will go crossed. But we have the same kind of same kind of thing in English. We talk about uh, the glory of something, the splendor of something, the wonder of something. Uh, all of these are different terms that all relate to beauty, to attractiveness, to something that when we see it, we, we just stop. We're not sure what to say. We don't have the words. It is just something that strikes us as beautiful. And so since God created all things beautiful, then that implies that God himself must be beautiful. He, the standard of beauty is inherent uh, within him. He is the standard of beauty. And when we talk about music, we talk about singing. Remember, it is not human beings who invented music. Music existed in heaven with the angels. Lucifer, before the fall of Lucifer, before he became Satan, he is described as having timbrels and pipes. He is a musician. And there is singing of the angels as they are singing glory to God in the heavens. And so because of that, we know that music was perfect. And so if there is a perfect music created by God, then that means that there is a standard for what is good music and what is bad music. It's not good music. It doesn't fit the standard of Scripture that would glorify God. So God uh, possessed intrinsic, possesses intrinsic beauty, which is the standard of all excellence and splendor, All magnificence, beauty, and glory. So, intrinsic beauty means that beauty is inherent in something. It is independent of any response that is produced. God is eternal. Therefore, all of his attributes together in their complexity are eternal and infinite. And he is beautiful. That the sum total, as I talked about last time, that we, we often think of beauty in terms of something that it, it, it is auditory. We hear something, it's beautiful, or we see something, it's beautiful. But often it goes much deeper than that. And I use the example of a chess game and of a brilliant series of chess moves. And, and that, in and of itself, would be beautiful. You you look at what some people are able to design in architecture or are a sculptor and, and it's beautiful and that's visual, but you can also read something. And the ideas that are present are beautiful. They're they're incredible. And we're just stunned by the glory of it. So that uh indicates that there is something there that's objective. So we use these different words. They're used in the scripture glorious, magnificent, majestic, splendid, beautiful, excellent. All of these are words that are translate different Hebrew words. Tov, meaning good or pleasant, but it's more it's it's not quite moral good. It's according to a standard. That's its core meaning. And as I pointed out last time when God goes through his plan and his blueprint for creation at the end of each he's he's divided it up into six stages, and in each stage he he does something, and at the end he looks at it and it's according to plan, he says it's tove, it fits the pattern it's it's excellent and then there's the second word "yafa," which means to be fair to beautiful handsome it applies to women, it applies to men, it applies to things, it applies to ideas. Then the third word, sevi, is also has the idea of beauty, splendor, or magnificence. It's translated these different ways, and the uh, fourth word there is hador, hadar, which has the idea of honor, uh, to adorn something or to glorify it. So we started off. We talked about the uh, choir ambush in Second Chronicles twenty twenty one when the Israelites were under attack by the Midianites, the Edomites, um, and the Ammonites, and they were, they were going to be overwhelmed. They had nothing to fight off these enemies with. They knew that they would be defeated. And Jehoshaphat prayed that prayer that I prayed as we began class from uh, verse 12 of Second Chronicles 20. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And so he cries out to God. And the next verse says, All Judah with their little ones, their wives, their children stood before the Lord. And then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah. And he gives a word from God. This is not like people today giving a word from God. This is God speaking through the prophet, and He says, "Listen, all of you, Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, and your king Jehoshaphat." Thus says the Lord to you: Do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude. For the battle is your not yours, but God's. And then God gives them instructions, and they go out and they go into the uh, to the hillsides around these these valleys and these caverns that are, that are there and they um, and the canyons that are there and and they begin to sing and god uses that to create confusion in the armies that are coming against them and they turn against each other they kill each other and they destroy each other and then the israelites come in and, and they take all all of the plunder and then they go to a place uh, near there, a valley near there, nobody's exactly sure where it is. Some people say it's the Kidron Valley. Other people say it's a little further south. And it's called the Valley of Bercha, which means the Valley of Blessing. And that is where they rejoice and they sing praises to God and thank Him for what He has what He has done. But the key in this verse, in verse 21, we read, when He had consulted with the people... He appointed those who should sing to the Lord. Now, he just doesn't go any, meeny, miny, mo. He picks people who are qualified to sing, who have good voices. He's going to pick those who are, are the best. And he appoints them to sing to the Lord and to praise what? This is a key phrase, the beauty of holiness. And the way this should be understood... Is it's the word that's translated beauty is the Hebrew word hadara, which has the idea some places it's translated adornment, some place glory. It has to do with um, with the array of something, the external array of something, and it is related to holiness. Now, we studied holiness, and holiness is a word that I have spent a lot of time studying over, over many, many years. Because I remember as a young college student reading through some basic doctrine books and different people organized the attributes of God different ways, and you would have some theologians who would have holy as one of the 12, 10 or 12 attributes of God. And they would usually define holy as, as a combination of God's justice and his righteousness. Emphasizing a moral purity idea in in the Hebrew word kadosh. That's the verb. Uh, the 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 noun is kadosh uh, for holiness. And what's interesting there is that's not quite right. Justice and righteousness are different. Holiness. The root meaning of the idea of holiness is that which is unique, that which is distinct, that which is set apart to the service of God. For example, the furniture, the vessels that are all in the tabernacle are all sanctified. It's like ordination, setting it apart for the service of God, setting somebody apart to serve God in the ministry. And so you have this this idea of holiness is that which is set apart to God. So holiness is really an, a, a term that describes all of God's attributes. He is holy in his sovereignty. There's nobody sovereign like God. He is the king of kings. He is the ruler of his creation, the ruler of the universe. Nobody's that. He is uniquely sovereign. He is uniquely righteous. He is uniquely just. He is uniquely loved. It's one of a kind. There's no one like that. And so the word holiness here stands for all of God's magnificent attributes the entire glory of god so it talks about the beauty of who god is the array of all of god's attributes that this is something that is glorious and that should be praised we praise god for who he is as the sovereign of creation and the creator of all things and so we find this phrase five or six different times in in the new testament i mean in the old testament a uh, second example is just a few, uh, few pages earlier in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. And this is a passage we touched on in the past. It is when, when uh, David um, uh, uh, brings the ark of God to the tabernacle. And David writes this psalm that is recorded in verses 8 uh, down through verse 36. And in the midst of that in First Chronicles sixteen uh, uh, actually this goes from about sixteen uh, twenty three to thirty three, the section that we're looking at in First Chronicles sixteen twenty-nine, the passage from verse twenty three to thirty three has a parallel, almost a word for word parallel in Psalm ninety six. Uh, 1b, the second half of verse 1, through the first part of 13, 13a. So Psalm 96, 1b to 13a is almost identical word for word of uh, 1 Chronicles uh, 16, 23 to 33. And what's interesting is the difference. Okay? And in 1 Chronicles 16, 26, we read... Uh, for all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. It's identical in Psalm uh, 96.5. That's why I only put 96.6 down here, is because it only differs from these three verses on the one word. And so it'd be, uh, 1 Chronicles 16.26 says, For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but Yahweh has made the heavens. Stark contrast. God is not into multicultural religion every, where everybody has their own favorite uh, gods or goddesses and everything's okay. There's only one truth, and that is the truth of, of God and his word. Verse 27, honor and majesty are in are before him. That means that this exudes from who he is. The first these first two words honor and majesty, and then there's two more words strength. And here it says gladness, uh, which is uh, the Hebrew word hedva, and it, it denotes joy and gladness. Inherent within God is is this joy that is everlasting. And so this the dwelling place of God is a place of joy and gladness. But there's a slight difference in psalm 96 5 through 7 honor and majesty are before him strength and add something different a different word beauty and here it's the hebrew word to parrot or and it refers to the glory the beauty of god and we studied the concept of the glory of god for example romans three twenty three: for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god I remember as a kid memorizing that going, what in the world is the glory of God? And it wasn't until many years later that in my study of the word I realized this was a term that was used that that incorporated all of God's attributes. It was a, a way in which the, the rabbis would speak about all of God's essence is his glory. That is who God is. It's the essence of God. So when it says the All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of God's essence, of his standards. And so here we have this word tefret, which has to do with his glory, his beauty, that God, all of the attributes of God, beauty is not some secondary attribute to describe God. It is the interworking of all of his attributes that makes him beautiful And so it's a much more robust concept than what we think of. I've been reading in the last uh, couple of days and some while I was on vacation some different things written about beauty just to try to um, focus on some different issues. And how do you define beauty? This is something that philosophers and theologians have struggled with for for 2,500 years or more. And it's almost impossible to do that, and I'm not going to... uh, bore us with the history of those ideas and concepts, but we want to build our understanding of of beauty from the Word of God. And so it has to do with this interworking of the perfections. That's another way uh, in which theologians have talked about all of God's attributes because he's perfect in each one of these. So it's this interworking of all of the perfections of God. We just stand back stunned in its glory and its beauty. Psalm twenty nine two is another verse that uses this phrase, "the beauty of holiness," and there the uh, psalmist a- exhorts or challenges the the singer, the reader, to praise God. And it's translated in the New King Je- New King James Version as "give unto the Lord," but the word really has the idea. Even though literally it means give. It has this idea of of ascribing or describing who God is, ascribe unto the Lord, give him the credit, the glory due to his name. And again, that phrase, his name, incorporates all of God's essence. Because in in Hebrew, uh, a name would reflect the essence of somebody. So we have uh, the birth of Esau and Jacob, the twins. And Esau comes out first, and Jacob is, is trying to sort of beat his brother Uh, out of the womb and be first and so he's grabbing it looks like he's grabbing at his brother's heel so he's called jacob the heel grabber and that's also a term for somebody who always tries to get the upper hand even if it involves deception and duplicity and playing a con game and that that described jacob to a t as as the as an unbeliever and, and his sin nature, he is duplicitous and he's always trying to get the upper hand and to con people. And so names meant something. God gives him a new name, Israel. He's a prince with God. Because when he is, uh, gets right with God and begins to live his life to glorify God, then God is going to bless him, uh, as the father of the 12 who will be the progenitors of the 12 tribes of Israel. So we're told, give or ascribe unto the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship Yahweh in the beauty of holiness, in the beauty, the glory, the splendor of who God is, his holy attributes. Now, I want to look at this next verse. Turn to Job, Job chapter 40. Job is a fascinating book to study what we've Studied parts of it in the past, and as you know, it's the story of a man who uh, is pointed out by God uh, to Satan and says, Well, have you looked at my servant Job? He worships me. What do you think about that? And Job says, Well, it's only because you give him everything. And so God allows Satan to test Job, and he take away his children, take away his wealth, take away his cattle, his herds, his flocks, his sheep, everything, destroy their homes, and he refuses to curse God. So Satan comes back and says, well, let me affect his health, and so God gives him permission, because Satan can't do anything without God's permission. He's going to test Job and takes his health away from him. He's terribly sick, digging at these canker sores that are driving him crazy, and he refuses to curse God. His wife says, just curse God and die. Wouldn't you love to have a wife like that? And so there's Job and his three friends come, and they're all saying basically the same thing, that you wouldn't have this happen if you were really righteous. But yet five or six times in chapter 1, God emphasizes, have you looked at my my servant Job? He's blameless. He's righteous. God is not bringing this on him because of some sin or defect in Job, but because Job is going to give evidence of his faith and it glorifies God. And finally, towards the end, Job is gets out of fellowship, as it were. He gets uh, focused on his problems and he wants God to give him an accounting. And so God's going to show up and talk to him. And in verse 40, he shows up and the Lord answers Job at the beginning uh, at the beginning of the chapter and God is speaking to Job. And in verse 6 we read then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, "Now prepare yourself like a man." In other words, stand up and be a man. I find it fascinating that God recognizes that there's going to be a gender a behavioral difference between the genders. Men are to be men, and women are to be women. And you're not supposed to confuse the two. Uh, He's to stand up like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. God speaking. He says, would you do all these things? And what he gets to in verse 9, he says, do you have an arm like God? In other words, do you have the omnipotence, the power? Because the arm of God always stands for his strength, his power, his arm, its figure of speech. Have you a, 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 an arm uh, like God? Or can you thunder with a voice like his? Can you, can you speak with the authority of God? And then verse 10 he says, Well, if you can, then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor. Notice how these concepts of majesty and splendor and glory uh, all tie together with these words used for beauty. And array yourself with glory and beauty why is that significant because when god asks these questions each issue in each question is an attribute that god possesses do you have an arm like god god is omnipotent he has an omnipotent power an omnipotent arm as it were or can you thunder with a voice like his? Can you speak like God with the authority of God? No, he can't. But God speaks with authority. And he says, then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor. Because God is adorned with majesty and splendor. And so Job can't do that. And then God says, array yourself with glory and beauty. See, God has an arm of power, God thunders with a voice of authority. He adorns himself with majesty and splendor. So, therefore, God is arrayed with glory and beauty. So that tells us again, God is, God is beautiful. Well, we go on to look at some other passages that have these phrases. For example, Psalm thirty-three one says, "Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous?" For praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise from the righteous is beautiful. That makes you wonder, can there be praise that is not beautiful? Yes, if it's not according to God's standard. And we know that because unrighteous behavior pr- produces a fake worship, and that was the worship of idolatry and and they would come in and try to worship God like they worship the idols. For example, when Aaron built, uh, was enticed to build the golden calf, and what did he say? This is the God who delivered you from the Egyptians. That wasn't God. That was, false. that was not praise from the righteous. He was being unrighteous at the time. Psalm 90, verse 17, And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And so the word for beauty there is the word na'em, which means to be pleasant or to be delightful or to be beautiful. It is the beauty of the Lord and that this should be reflected in the craftsmanship and the artistry of their work, the work of their hands. Then we have a passage in Psalm 104, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty. And this is a verse that uses this same language, that God is clothed with honor and majesty. He's clothed with beauty. Psalm 147, uh, Psalm 147, 1. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. Again, we have to ask the question Is the praise that is offered in churches beautiful? Does it fit a standard that conforms to God's standard of, of, of beauty? Psalm 45, 2 through 4 reads. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Speaking messianically. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. And in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. So in the first In the second verse here, you are fairer. How do you understand fairer here? This is the the Hebrew word yatha, which has the idea of being beautiful. It is defined in terms of grace coming from his mouth, uh, power, he's mighty, his sword is girded upon his thigh, uh, he's with glory and majesty, and in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. So all of these different attributes, all are what make him beautiful. In Psalm 8, one in the New King James, it translates it, O Lord, our, God, our Lord, oh, how excellent, or how magnificent, or awesome, or, or beautiful, or, or majestic. Any of those would translate the Hebrew word is your name, your essence, who you are in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. And these words, awesome, majestic, magnificent, are other words that are used uh, by the N-E-T, awesome and majestic, are in the footnote, magnificent is uh, the word they chose in translating it. Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing I have desired of Yahweh that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord. Now, he wouldn't see physically that, but it is from the essence of God that is represented by the dwelling presence, the Shekinah, in the temple. To behold the beauty of God, so again and again we see that the beauty of God is represented. Um, represented by um, his, the beauty of God represents His essence. Zechariah nine sixteen and seventeen we read, the Lord their God will save them in that day. Talking about the future day of the Lord, which comes at the end of the tribulation period. As the flock of his people, for they shall be like the jewels of a crown, glorious, splendid, uh, lifted like a banner over his head, for how great is its goodness and how great its beauty related to God's deliverance. Now we'll stop here tonight. We're going to get to one more example, but it takes a little time. We're going to look at the word for tov and and look at that as a concept of beauty, that, that which is intrinsically good. And so there is this sense of objective, intrinsic, inherent beauty, and then its response that it brings with us. And if we don't have the capacity, spiritually, or through our spiritual growth to appreciate it, then it's just like so many people who look at great works of art, Like you go to a museum, the adults who have capacity are looking at some uh, beautiful work of art, and kids are more concerned about playing or something else, and they, they don't even care. Maturity brings that capacity. It changes our tastes. So some people say, well, I just don't like it. That'll change. God changes our likes. He changes our desires as we mature and as we grow so that we understand that which will honor and glorify God. So we'll come back to continue this study, wrap up a few things next time before we go forward in our study in Psalm 30. Father, thank you for this time that we have together. Again, we pray for our nation, pray for our president, pray for this election. We pray for the results, the consequences that may come. Uh, We are warned on both sides that if things don't turn out a certain way, that there may be blood in the streets, there may be violence. Father, we pray that you would restrain evil even as you expose evil. And Father, we pray that you will give us an opportunity as believers to continue to glorify you and to proclaim the truth of the gospel even in the midst of this wicked and perverse generation that we may glorify you and that many more may come to a saving knowledge of Christ, believe in him as their savior. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.